Hello and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data centre podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray, Senior Reporter Natalie Bannerman, and Special Guest Hannes Gredler, who is the CTO at RT Brick. Um, and Hannes is also joined by Richard Brandon, who's the VP of Marketing. Over the course of this episode, we are going to be talking about the biggest stories from the last week, but before that, a quick roundup of the headlines. In breaking news from Asia today, SK Telecom has said it is to split into two units, an AI and digital infraco, and division tentatively called the ICT Investment Company. In Kenya, telco ownership is under the spotlight again after the Ministry of ICT set a 2024 deadline for the country's telcos to address their foreign ownership. And IBM has named its independent managed infrastructure business, which will be called Kindrel. In Europe, Italy is apparently planning to build ultra-fast networks using recovery fund money from the EU. Qualcomm has launched a fellowship and training program for those who want a hand in the development of 5G in Spain. In Bulgaria, Natera has broken ground on its second Sofia data center. And Swisscom has switched off its 2G mobile service after 28 years, while over in Greece, Cosmete has said it will switch off 3G by the end of this year. And finally, in the UK, a report by the Vendor Diversity Task Force has concluded that a network of smaller suppliers could support the country's 5G rollout after the ban on Huawei kit. So those are the headlines, and now over to Natalie for an in-depth look at the bigger telecom stories of the week. Thanks, Melanie. Um, So yeah, starting off in Europe, um, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority um, has provisionally cleared the £31 billion proposed merger of Virgin Media and um, O2. Um, So from the beginning, the regulator has actually made it clear that it was not actually concerned with any overlap in retail services um, due to the small service of Virgin Mobile. Um, But it it has instead focused on whether the acquisition could lead to reduced competition in the wholesale space. So uh, following the conclusion of an inquiry into the uh, merger, the CMA has said that the deal is unlikely to lead to any wholesale competition conflicts due to the fact that uh, one backhaul costs um, form a small part of uh, their rival mobile company's overall costs, making it difficult for Virgin Media to kind of raise its backhaul costs and and remain competitive. Uh, Secondly, they said the presence of additional market players such as BT Openreach offering the same lease line services uh, with a much bigger geographical uh, reach. Um, And three, um, just as with lease line services, there are other companies that also provide wholesale um, mobile networks, meaning that O2 will have to kind of remain competitive and and isn't likely to kind of uh, be hiking up prices anytime soon. Um, according to Kester Mann, who's actually the Director of Consumer and Connectivity at analyst firm CC Insight, um, the blockbuster merger will transform the UK uh, telecoms landscape and create a powerful new converged provider to rival BT. Um, so safe to say we'll be uh, watching closely to see what's next in the development of this deal. Now, over in uh, Egypt, a project led by the government to connect 1,300 villages to fibre has entered its first stage of development. Uh, Valued at $32 billion, the whole scheme will connect uh, 4,584 villages, which represents uh, 58% of Egypt's total population of just over 100 million. The project forms part of the country's Decent Life project, which was started two years ago as part of the ICT department's efforts to improve access to the internet. 
At the same time, the ministry is implementing digital Egypt builders initiatives um, as part of an uh, integrated strategy to create skills needed by the local and international labour markets. Um, ultimately, the ministry aims to turn Egypt into what it calls a pioneering country uh, in the field of uh, digital technology with the aim of enabling citizens to get e-services. Um, Hoda Bakara, who is the first deputy to the minister, um, said that the country was working on projects at the moment with um, AWS, Cisco, IBM, uh, Microsoft and VMware. So uh, good luck to Egypt in its ambitious plans. I'm sure we'll be watching closely. Now, over in Africa, NTN is reportedly eyeing up a valuation of more than $5 billion for its mobile money business. Uh, according to reports, the company is attempting to attract international buyers and investors uh, to acquire a minority stake in the business by capitalizing on the fast growing fintech space. Uh, we think the best way to run uh, these businesses is to structurally um, separate them, um, said uh, Ralph um, Mu Peter, who is the CEO of MTN. Uh, he also believes that the move will unlock about um, $11 billion in market valuation for the company. Um, they first announced plans to separate various parts of its business last month as part of its ambitious uh, 2025 plan, as well as at the same time publishing its financial results for 2020. Um, Madipa also said, um, we think that the fintech business will be worth more than $5 billion, reading across from the um, Airtel Africa trans transaction, referring, of course, to the news that its rival Airtel business has recently sold minority stakes in its mobile money business for about uh, $2.6 billion. Um, the fintech business over at MTM is actually in great shape. It has added um, almost 12 million new, new, new users in 2020, bringing the total to about 46 million. Its financial services ventures also include things like insurance and insurance uh, joint venture, which has over 10 million customers. So we'll see if the business uh, hits the 5 billion valuation mark, but more importantly, if they manage to find investors willing to meet them at that price point. Um, and then lastly, over in um, Eastern Europe, Orange Poland has formed a jointly owned fibre company with the Dutch pension investment company called APG. Uh, the new joint venture company uh, aims to support the rollout of fibre across Poland, specifically underserved areas where broadband infrastructure is limited or non-existent. Over the next five years, the fibre company plans on rolling out 2.5 million lines, including 1.7 million homes. The deal is valued at uh, 605 million euros with Orange Poland to receive 303 million euros from APG. 65% uh, of that sum will be paid on the closing of the deal, with the rest to be paid between 2022 and 2026 as the deployment plan progresses. Uh, Orange Pilot has said that the deal will enable the company to accelerate its ambitious fibre optic rollout plans by sharing investment costs, uh, which, as we know, is becoming more and more popular. So great news for the company and the region. But that's it from me. Thanks, Natalie. Um, just going back to the Virgin OT deal, like given the long, long history on this one, was anybody surprised by the outcome? Not particularly. I think both O2 and, and Virgin Media, their, their kind of footprint across the UK kind of separately is, is relatively small. Um, and as, as the uh, the regulator was saying, it, there really isn't much overlap kind of with its retail services. And I was really surprised if they were going to find anything kind of in the wholesale space. I think it's a different argument if BT Openreach was looking to do the same. I think that would probably be a bit more of concern. 
Definitely, yeah. Um, but this one was originally with um, the European regulator, wasn't it? And it was with them for quite some time. And then after Brexit, it got transferred to the UK. And it just kind of feels as though these discussions around whether it can or cannot go ahead have been ongoing for such a long time. And now... Yeah, the, the ones who are probably feeling aggrieved are three, which a few years ago wanted to merge with O2 in the UK, uh, as three and O2 Ireland merged a few years before. And it was the European regulator who said, no, that can't happen. They didn't want uh, the UK mobile market to go from four to three operators, uh, which it still is. And it's left three as the smallest of the four operators. Such a silly name, three. When you're talking about numbers, um, but there we are. Um, it made sense when it was 3G, but it's now 5G. Uh, but. I guess they're going to feel a bit sore that their opportunity for merging with somebody has gone uh, and they're the smallest of the operators in the UK market. So I'm not sure what their future is going to be. Um, there isn't a lot of opportunity to merge with anybody, I would think. I was going to say, yeah, um, this, it, this is kind of like the end of mergers, really, in the UK market until a new player comes in. But just back to the point that you mentioned about um, Hutchison and Three and their views on this. Um, I think it was their chief executive last year who came out and said that the European Commission had prevented vital industry innovation um, by blocking their merger. Um, so that was quite interesting. Um, yeah, I think that was like... Yeah, it all started with a merger in Austria, I think it was. It was Dry Austria, which is, you know, Three Austria merge with somebody and then they said oh the prices have gone up as a result and then the European Commission just set its face against any four to three mergers across the big economies of Europe and so you know France and Germany and the UK which was in the EU Spain so they you know it's there haven't been any opportunities for merging mobile operators whereas the US has gone from four to three with uh, Sprint and T-Mobile merging uh, last year China has got three. The big economies, the giant economies have got three. Uh, the smaller economies have got four. And, and there's no opportunity for cross-border mergers, really, because the, it's just too complicated. Really, it's just too complicated. <laughs> Interesting. Um, well, staying with you, Alan, um, I believe you have an update now on Meng Guanzi's case. Um, so what's the latest on Huawei's house-arrested CFO? Exactly. It's the first bit of good news in two and a half years, nearly, since she was arrested at Vancouver Airport, December 2019, by the Canadians uh, with a warrant uh, issued by the United States, which wants to ex extradite her uh, over alleged allegations concerning Huawei's alleged, and so I'm going to use alleged a lot, uh, efforts to uh, export software and hardware into Iran against a US embargo. Um, and what happened is that the Americans want to prove that HSBC Bank didn't know that uh, Huawei was connected with an intermediary uh, that it was using to ship stuff to Iran. Uh, Meng Wanzhou and her legal team have been wanting to show that HSBC knew it all along. Uh, finally, this week, HSBC agreed to reveal the documents about any dealings they've had with Huawei and Meng Wanzhou uh, to the court in Vancouver, where the extradition case is continuing and will probably go on till July. And then probably there will be appeals, which will go on another six months or 12 months. So I don't think it's going to be resolved yet. It's just the first bit of good news that she's had for two and a half years since and she's under house arrest. She's continuing to work as the CFO for Huawei. And um, she's got her financial team there with her in Vancouver. 
but it's just means she hasn't been able to get home for, since December 2019. Uh, let's move on from uh, Huawei and Hong Kong uh, and Canada to Kazakhstan, um, where this week was the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin doing the first uh, crewed flight into space, first human flight into space. Um, and the management team from OneWeb were there uh, on the same day, on the 12th of, 12th of April, uh, uh, signing a deal with the Kazakhstan Republic. Uh, they want to make Kazakhstan a, a sort of center of satellite technology. They've set up a OneWeb offshoot uh, in Kazakhstan, and they want to set up a set, center of excellence for satellite technology in Kazakhstan. Uh, probably in the capital, probably not at Baikonur, which is where Gagarin took off from. And of course, that was in the days of the USSR, and it's now a sort of um, territory leased to Russia for a few more years. But meanwhile, Russia is building new, has built new launch sites in its own territory. But uh, anyway, OneWeb is now really doing a big deal with Kazakhstan uh, and with a component supplier, spacecraft component supplier and the National Space Center in Kazakhstan. So I think uh, you know, OneWeb's got uh, Japan involved in uh, investment in via SoftBank. It's got the Harty Airtel involved as a major uh, investor uh, and it's got the UK government as a major investor and maybe we'll get to Kazakhstan as well, which is an interesting journey. Um, and finally, let's go to Chicago, um, where the university has decided to fund a quantum technology uh, startups. It's, uh, it wants to do 10 quantum startups a year. It's one of the two centers in the US of quantum technology, the other being Boulder, Colorado. Uh, where Dan Caruso, formerly of Zeo, is taking has taken over as a chairman and uh, interim CEO of Cold Quanta, which is a quantum computing company. But Chicago, which is where a lot of fundamental uh, nuclear research was done in the 1930s, is where Enrico Fermi first split the atom and things like that. Um, anyway, the U.S. government, the Department of Energy, is working with the University of Chicago to fund quantum startups. So it looks like we're going to have a whole new entrepreneurial industry in the quantum technology area. And this seems to be an area that's moving very quickly. Um, and we're watching it carefully. Back to Natalie now for data center news. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, so uh, a quick roundup from me. So earlier this week, uh, Google opened a cloud region in Warsaw, Poland. Um, it's actually the, their first in Central and Eastern Europe. So the new location will provide low latency access for users of Google services across Poland, as well as its neighboring countries, and deliver more efficient connectivity to Google partners and their customers. Uh, the project was actually first announced in 2019. And last year, the Polish government said it expected Google to invest between one five and two billion dollars on the project though this figure um, has yet to be confirmed by the company itself um, earlier this year Google has also said that it is going to grow its cloud engineering hub in Warsaw and has named Dan DeCasper as Google vice president um, as the new head of the site. Um, last December, Google said it planned to add a second cloud region in Germany, along with two others in Saudi Arabia and Chile. So watch this space for more announcements in the near future. 
Uh, now, Chinese infrastructure provider Tencent uh, Cloud earlier this week launched its first data center in Indonesia. Located in Jakarta, the new facility is now in full operation, provided back, providing backbone access and networking to all major Indonesian and global internet service providers. Um, the data center will offer low latency for end customers in the country and provide more disaster recovery options for organizations across the APAC region. In addition, it will also support the growing needs of a wide range of industries, including uh, financial services, internet access and e-commerce, um, as well as entertainment, gaming and education. Interestingly, uh, last month, uh, Tencent said um, it would be opening an additional data center in Bahrain that will be opening by the end of this year. So another one for us to keep an eye on. Now, Johnson Controls, which is a building technology and services firm, has confirmed plans to uh, acquire uh, data center and cooling infrastructure company uh, Silent Air for up to uh, $870 million. Now, under the terms of the deal, Johnson will make an upfront payment of around $630 million and additional payments will be made uh, subject to meeting kind of post-closing um, earnout milestones. Uh, Silent Air, for those who don't know, they specialize in the design, engineering and manufacturing of custom air systems and modular data centers for hyperscale cloud and co-location providers. Uh, interestingly, its revenue for uh, the end of the fiscal year 2021 is expected to be around $650 million. <clears throat> so according to its uh, CEO and chairman, um, the acquisition uh, gives them a significant opportunity to increase their focus on the data center vertical and accelerate growth uh, by combining the strengths of uh, the global scale and manufacturing of Johnson with um, the leading edge innovation and broad portfolio services um, dedicated to serving hyperscale providers. So the transaction is expected to close in third quarter of this year um, and sounds like a beneficial deal for all. So we look forward to seeing how that progresses. Now, last but not least, over in Asia, China Mobile Cloud has selected Nokia to support the rollout of its cloud services and data interconnectivity. Specifically, China Mobile Cloud will use um, Nokia Nuage Network's end-to-end SDN solution for its China-wide deployment of its public cloud service. Specifically, the Nuage Virtualized Cloud Services system will provide network automation across networks and clouds of all sizes and allows end customers to build what they call fully isolated isolated and secure uh, virtual public clouds um, that connect to uh, other VPCs and internet and enterprise data centers. Uh, the technology solution includes an SDN controller, so a software switch, SDN gate, firewall, load balancer, and a VPN. Um, Marcus uh, Brockert, who is the president of Nokia in the China region, um, said that um, the solution in their portfolio um, really delivers a, a customized service and, you know, they're, they're confident that they're able to support China Mobile Cloud as it pursues its goal of evolving in the cloud era. Um, so great news for Nokia, um, you know, they're very much a vendor who's been doing very well um, as of late, a lot of um, innovation in, in the space, particularly I think a lot in Open RAN as well. Um, but I also think you also have a, another data center news from um, is it PG, PDG, Alan? I think you've got another story. Yes, I do. Uh, thank you. And it's China again, uh, China and Indonesia. Uh, PDG, Princeton Digital Group, uh, has announced uh, a $1 billion expansion plan in China because it's got some data centers already, but it's basically selling out of capacity. Uh, and it's going to build another 300 megawatts of capacity in China. 
in the next 12 to 24 months. But it's also, I was talking to the chairman and CEO of Angu Salgami earlier this week, and they're expanding. They're looking at expanding to South Korea and Japan and the Philippines. Uh, already in four existing countries, that's China, India, India, Indonesia and Singapore. And they're finding, finding the take up just extraordinary. Uh, Shanghai, their Shanghai data center uh, has got 42 megawatts of capacity and that's already fully contracted. It's started construction of 43 megs in Nanjing and design work on a 60 megawatt capacity in Nantong. Um, and they've sold all their capacity in Singapore as well. That's the one they bought from IO data centers a couple of years ago. Um, so uh, Shanghai sold out. They really need more capacity. They're building it as fast as they can. And they they got $230 million worth of debt this year, this week from China Merchants Bank uh, as part of its $1 billion uh, expansion plan. Um, and they're also going to be expanding in India. Uh, I think they've got one in Mumbai and there's a lot of else going on. Uh, he says Chennai is the likely location for the next one and they're expanding capacity in Indonesia. They're looking at uh, telcos that have got data centers to want to sell them off to a data center company. Um, so your PDG seems to be doing really well. It's certainly building really well. The whole market is expanding. Melanie, back to you. Thanks, Alan. Um, and thanks, Natalie, as well. It's some um, very interesting roundups. It's clearly been another very, um, very fast paced week across both industries. Um, but for our next segment, we are going to be talking with Hannes Gredler, the founder and CTO of RT Brick. Hannes, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the Digital Digest. Thanks for having me. Um, now, for those who don't know, RT Brick brings a cloud native approach to carrier net networks and its routing software takes the power out of the hands of vendors, shall we say. Um, but before establishing the company, Hannah's worked for Juniper Networks and Nokia, and his mastermind subject is systems architecture. Um, now, Hannah, you established RT Brick in 2015, but tell us why did you create the company and what's the core objective? Well, uh, basically, we made a couple of observations starting 2013, 2014 uh, by touring uh, through all the U.S. West Coast data center operators. Uh, one of the things that we figured out uh, that uh, those um, uh, data center operators are not procuring uh, their uh, systems from companies like Cisco or Juniper anymore, uh, but rather uh, have started to invest uh, in their uh, own switch designs manufactured by uh, Taiwan-based OEMs, and they've just planted their own software stacks on top of that. And uh, with great concern at the time, uh, we have seen that uh, uh, every layer by layer in the data center, uh, um, the um, software stacks grew more mature. And uh, well, uh, we, uh, my product manager and also my uh, at Juniper and uh, later, which later became my co-founder at RT Brick, uh, Praveen Bandakar, and I have just been uh, contemplating, hey, when does that uh, hit? Uh, finally, uh, um, will that wave hit uh, the uh, big uh, telecommunication companies, the wide area transport providers? And uh, well, we figured out that um, there is a special need of uh, um, initially uh, designed as middleware, later on became an entire uh, switch NOS. Um, and uh, well, uh, we wanted to be uh, that uh, company that uh, can ease the transition 
for disaggregated networking where hardware uh, gets uh, sourced uh, straight from the switch OEMs and uh, will provide obviously the software. Fascinating. So what was the kind of initial market reaction? Um, <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> the um, initial market reaction was obviously the market was not prepared at all uh, because, uh, you know, for two decades or so, uh, they have been uh, sourcing uh, ready uh, to consume uh, systems, right? Um, and um, uh, now with this aggregation, uh, it's not just about uh, uh, hey, porting the same functionality in a disaggregated environment, uh, but also uh, it gives uh, a bit of an opportunity to uh, clean up here the slack uh, from your OSS, BSS systems. And um, uh, the initial uh, reaction was actually, hey, uh, let's actually do that as part of our uh, OSS re-architecture. Uh, so uh, in other words, it was initially uh, uh, getting much slower than what we have expected, uh, uh, but uh, it's actually taking uh, up uh, significant speed by now. Interesting. Um, well, one thing that I find particularly fascinating about you and RT Brick um, is that you founded the company, but you didn't appoint yourself CEO. Um, and most people who found companies do. So why did you choose to be CTO instead? Um, very simple uh, answer. Uh, we were uh, always looking here for complementarity, right? Uh, uh, my uh, co-founder Praveen uh, actually has got an uh, MBA, uh, uh, knows actually how to drive and build up organizations, uh, uh, is also very good uh, with financials and budgeting. And uh, I always had that talent for uh, um, bringing out products, finding uh, solutions to problems with, uh, uh, I would say, a less than adequate budget and uh, less than infinite time. So that's where I'm good at. Fantastic. Um, well, we're going to um, dig down next into network disaggregation. Um, now, thanks to RT Brick, Deutsche Telekom connected its first customer to a live disaggregated broadband network back in January of this year. Um, now, that was a huge achievement. But for those who aren't familiar with the project, tell us why it's significant for telcos um, and what it paves the way for in future. Um. I, I have to go a bit back uh, to uh, 2017 when we started our uh, technology partnership with Deutsche Telekom. And uh, they came to us and said, look, uh, we really have a problem. Uh, we have those uh, uh, monolithic chassis-based systems and uh, um, they're under constant flux, right? There's always a new line card, a new version of this, new version of that. Uh, so we have essentially four uh, teams, uh, uh, day in, day out, 220 days a year, uh, uh, rotating through our central offices and just doing replacements, right? Um, so they wanted really to get out of that replacement business. And we started um, taking some of their uh, modular-based uh, switches and uh, breaking it down into discrete components and uh, sort of re-architecting that whole data flow and control plane flow uh, uh, pretty much like uh, how the uh, data center operators, the hyperscalers, have been building uh, their large fabrics for interconnecting 
uh, their servers. Uh, the only difference here was that uh, uh, obviously we were not interconnecting uh, servers, but optical line terminals and DSLAMs uh, and internet backbone ports, but uh, uh, the underlying base technology is the same. Fantastic. Well, staying with Deutsche Telekom, um, at the end of last year, they and three other major telcos, namely Telefonica, BT and Vodafone, collaborated as part of the Telecom Infra project. Um, and the objective there was to define the next generation of open and disaggregated broadband network gateways. Um, so what are your thoughts on that project? Uh, well, uh, the Open BNG paper, uh, I guess, uh, is a fantastic achievement for uh, two reasons. Reason number one, uh, it uh, clears up all, uh, I would say, all the SDN uh, irritation from the past years where uh, uh, many concepts uh, try to uh, uh, micromanage forwarding state at the switches, which uh, works actually pretty great for lab demonstration, but not really for uh, uh, large-scale uh, deployments where you have potentially 100,000 of, of subscribers in your central office. That's number one. Number two is um, the uh, Deutsche Telekom uh, uh, procurement guys have a little bit eyeing to uh, what Facebook did in 2014, 2015, which is uh, submitting a sort of a standardized uh, switch design to the open compute project, right? Uh, in hope uh, that uh, many OEMs will pick up that design and uh, then uh, a result will be a, a healthy market uh, where they uh, actually can pick from and, uh, well, obviously have market forces at their full play and uh, drive down the prices. And uh, they wanted to do a similar thing here uh, for uh, the uh, network access layer for the BNGs. And perhaps if I can add to that as well, Hannes, the um that sort of separation of hardware and software, which is something we've been so used to in computing for you know, decades now, it's incredibly liberating for these operators to be able to have you know, the equivalent of a, of a Huawei hardware chassis and pick Nokia's software to run on it, which which that's, that's a hypothetical example that won't work at the moment. But, but it does work once you get into the network disaggregation approach that Deutsche Telekom have got. They can select a choice of hardware vendors, they can mix and match them inside what we used to think of as a chassis, and then they can pick their software completely independent of that and, and break out of that sort of cycle that Hannes was talking about of having to just upgrade another line card and then the back plane and then the software and then you go round and round again. Right, right, exactly, Richard. So that form factor uh, can only be compared to what happened to the compute industry, well, more than 40 years ago uh, uh, with uh, uh, the uh, personal computer coming to the market, right, uh, where you had a bit of a standardized form factor and, uh, uh, you know, many competing software uh, companies that uh, actually could port uh, their uh, application OSs uh, on top of that standardized form factor. Okay, well, this is all very, um, very topical information, and I want to open it up to um, Alan and Natalie now to see if they have any additional questions for you. Can I ask, why are you called RT Brick? And why do you have, it might sound a banal question, why do you have Lego bricks and Lego people on your website? 
<laughs> uh, good question. Um, well, um, uh, as it has been mentioned before, I have been in previous life a uh, 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 routing protocol software engineer at a large router vendor and um, a very successful uh, router vendor. And um, usually uh, uh, a large commercial success uh, uh, breeds here uh, a certain content, uh, which is that uh, you often uh, do not really refresh uh, your software and uh, software is actually something that uh, ages particularly well. And um, <laughs> except when we get to, uh, as we did <laughs> 20 odd years ago, to uh, uh, the, the two, two, uh, two, y, 2K, 2KY, you know, as we came up to 2000, all the banks found that they'd got 30 year old software that was written in the days when memory was expensive. But yes, I see what I see what you mean. <laughs> You, you, you made a very good point. Memory was expensive. CPU yeah. was expensive. And as such, um, you know, the software was very much uh, developed with an, what I call an embedded mindset, uh, which is trying to suck out uh, the least uh, CPU cycle, the least uh, piece of memory out there. Mm. And uh, well, let's take stock. Uh, CPUs uh, have been grown by three orders of magnitude, more processing power, more memory. Uh, so we actually have now uh, a different optimization target, right? Uh, the optimization target is modularity, portability, and uh, not so much really uh, uh, getting the last uh, bit and piece uh, out of uh, your physical hardware. And um, when we uh, designed um, our uh, operating system, uh, which is called RTBrick Full Stack, uh, because it uh, deals uh, all the at uh, three different levels from management, routing, signaling protocols to uh, system drivers and hardware abstraction toolkit. Um, the, there, um, uh, we found uh, the need to uh, have reusable components. Uh, and as such, every of our major components is called uh, a brick. And oh. well, RT, uh, that's a little bit of uh, uh, software engineering lingo, uh, which is often uh, in uh, routing protocol code RT uh, is the uh, um, uh, sort of uh, function name for uh, everything that is related to a router. And the Lego bricks are because they, they're they also disaggregated different sorts of elements that you can build complicated structures with, I guess. Is that, am I, am I leaping too far or is that? I, exactly I like the way you're leaping there, Alan. I, I, as, <laughs> okay, as, uh, yeah, as the marketing guy, I might adopt that story because it's quite nice. Oh, or right. it could just be because they're obviously bricks, as is our name. But okay. um, yeah, they've also uh, got Lego people. I, and I uh, they just kind of followed on from the bricks, really. Okay, yeah. um, but uh, who doesn't like, who doesn't? like Lego. <laughs> um, um, Except when you tread on it at uh, three in the morning. <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it's actually, um, uh, I would say, uh, the business differentiator these days is agility and speed, right? Um, and uh, particularly where we have now this uh, hardware-based ecosystem heating up, right? Uh, uh, every month uh, uh, there is one OEM coming out with new designs, new chipsets. Uh, we uh, have a bit of the eternal challenge of deciding where do we port our software stack. And uh, I have to say, we are very fast now. Uh, just uh, the other week, uh, we sent out uh, 
uh, an announcement uh, that we have just completed uh, uh, one uh, 300 millimeter form factor, which is very popular in the mobile backhaul uh, type of deployments, uh, uh, but for BNG purposes. And the entire porting uh, took us based on our architecture uh, just four weeks, including SQA testing. That is absolute uh, unheard of uh, time because usually those porting uh, projects last uh, 12 to 18 months. Mm. Excellent. Uh, I've got a fi final question, Hannes. What, you did a master's degree in mechatronics. What's mechatronics and how does that lead, <laughs> lead to your uh, telecoms? Uh, that was actually, uh, uh, I would say, uh, uh, interdisciplinary studies uh, uh, at the heart of um, um, uh, management, economics, uh, uh, machine engineering, and also computer science and electronics. Uh, uh, my my uh, professor there always used to, to remind us, hey, hey guys, uh, don't remember after you graduate, uh, you're masters of none. <laughs> but nevertheless, you've been, it took you into the industry and you've been doing it for a quarter of a century now. So that's great. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, I, I, I guess uh, back at the university, I got uh, my love for networking for GCP IP. We had an assistant professor who just returned from a US tenor. Uh, and uh, uh, he told us all about this uh, fancy new protocol that's going to rule the world. Uh, and that was 93. And from that point on, I wanted to learn everything about that. And that's how uh, 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 that became a career for me. Excellent. I'll pass on to Natalie next. You've got some questions, Natalie. Um, I don't have a great many. I mean, I think for me, what, what I was, um, you know, playing devil's advocate, if I then asked, you know, what what kind of separates RT Brick from maybe some of its competitors in, in, in the space? What do you guys do better than any, anyone else? Um, uh, good question. Uh, I think uh, there is now, uh, I would say, three, four uh, uh, different uh, players who are uh, playing in the uh, uh, this uh, uh, aggregated space. Uh, interestingly, uh, uh, they all have got a different focus, right? Uh, uh, there is uh, companies who focus a bit on uh, the core uh, features. Uh, there is uh, companies who focus on uh, data center interconnect peering. Uh, and uh, well, there's uh, companies like ours uh, who focus on the access. Um, um, Again, uh, let me reiterate that uh, our superpower is uh, uh, our core operating system. Uh, we can accommodate uh, uh, every uh, management protocol, new data planes in record time, and as such, uh, uh, have a rapidly growing uh, hardware comp compatibility list. I, I think as well, just I was reminded of the conversation earlier when we were talking about, uh, you guys were talking about mobile operators and consolidation and, and, and competition, that in the telco equipment vendor space, really the, it's been a community that's just been contracting and contracting down to, you know, kind of four-ish large vendors now. Um, and and so this shifts the first time I think I can remember for a couple of decades where we've seen that opportunity for that number of 
of vendors into the telco space suddenly increasing with, as as Hannah said, maybe four or five new guys. Um, so it's going to be an interesting. It's going to be an interesting next two or three years to see how that vendor landscape suddenly changes from having the old guard that have just consolidated and consolidated, and and suddenly all these new companies uh, um, piping up that are you know can just do agile software very quickly. It's almost replicating, you know, as Hannah was saying earlier, what happened in the IT industry. We saw all the big mainframe mm -hmm. companies, I'm talking about the 80s now, 1980s, where they all merged with one another, leaving IBM and the rest, but fewer of the rest than there have been. Um, and now, and we've seen this in the telecoms industry, particularly over the last five or six years with Alcatel and Lucent and Siemens all going into Nokia. And suddenly everybody woke up last year thinking oh we've got huawei and zte and nokia and ericsson and oh that's it oh and then you take two of those out of the market for a lot of countries um you've got two and that's just nervously too few it is it is too few and yeah. and when you know when you're potentially for security reasons taking out perhaps some of that um Asian cost base, this is also a really interesting opportunity because, as Hannes alluded, you know, most of the actual, the bare metal switch guys have got that cost base. They're often produced in Taiwan on the same kind of assembly lines that have been building Cisco routers. And now, now that stuff's available at a tenth of the cost to carriers and they can go independently to the software to you know a nation that's maybe more trusted or more innovative um so yes we, we, it's it's a it's going to be a fascinating uh, battle and just the fact that there are more companies in there it means that there are more opportunities more ventures probably more failures but you know if it's a small company you can you can survive a failure because it's a, only got a small part of the market. But those people will then spin off around into other companies and mm -hmm. spread the innovation rather than it all being controlled by. Uh, sorry, Hannes, I'm not going to criticize CTOs. But, you know, if you have a CTO of Ericsson and Nokia and ZTE and Huawei, they're basically controlling the direction of the market. You need dozens of them all over the place. Right, exactly. Uh, you need an anti-fragile setup, right? Optionality uh, and uh, uh, ultimately, uh, I would say, market uh, plus a little bit of randomness uh, will take its course. Exactly, yes. Um, well, Hannah, you mentioned at the start of the interview the education piece that's needed when the company first launched. Um, where does that education level stand now? And in terms of what's possible at the moment, what do telcos kind of need to know? Um, well, um, uh, I would say um, uh, obviously we're doing this uh, switching and routing piece, right? Um, and uh, I mentioned previously that uh, there is often a push for uh, uh, cleaning up uh, their own uh, software stacks, OSS, BSS stacks. And um, what we actually do see now uh, for uh, those projects that are running successful, uh, just like Deutsche Telekom, uh, it uh, goes hand in hand with a massive uh, re-education and retooling uh, effort of the operation folks. So it's not just uh, here uh, um, where you have a bunch of uh, router jockeys with their CCIE and JNCIE certifications. Uh, uh, it's more uh, you need uh, people who can drive entire automation pipelines, 
um, who uh, know uh, how to manage uh, clusters, cloud-level technology, Kubernetes. Um, uh, so the tooling of the networking engineer uh, really changes. And I think uh, uh, that is also um, uh, something that uh, telcos uh, start realizing uh, right now. Excellent. Um, well, just to come on to the last question, gentlemen, um, how do you see the wider telco industry evolving in the coming years? I, I'm going to take that one first, Hannes, because you probably say something cleverer than me and then I, I won't look so good. But, um, uh, you know, joking apart, I, I, you know, I think our perspective would often be that, you know, we just don't know how things are going to go. I mean, look at the last year and a half with the with the pandemic and, and the shift of user patterns and the extra broadband traffic and so if there's anything we really need to plan for, it, it's to be flexible so we can ad adapt to stuff as it comes along. Um, and, and I think, you know, when you look at the speed that the cloud native guys can build out data centers and operate them, it's like that's what we need to bring to the telco world. That, that, that ability to, you know, rapidly add a new service when they see an opportunity to rapidly expand the amount of infrastructure when there's a, when there's a demand for it. So um, I think that would be, be my perspective, Hannah. So I'm sure you have something to add to that yes um i do see uh, actually two scenarios panning out uh, uh there is first of all the optimistic scenario where uh, telcos really do adopt uh, that uh, uh, cloud native uh, almost lifestyle right uh, and adopt those tools and uh, uh, invest in retraining retooling of their staff right that's scenario number one uh, and scenario number two is the slightly more pessimistic one where they fail to do so and uh, will then be just overwhelmed uh, by, uh, I would say, uh, the commercials uh, of the traditional cloud providers who will be expanding uh, their uh, footprint. Uh, so uh, you mentioned uh, earlier in the news block, uh, we see uh, data centers are just uh, are popping out left and right uh, uh, across all the major cities of the world. Uh, that trend uh, uh, is going to intensify. And um, if uh, telcos do not really adapt to that challenge, uh, they will be uh, just housing providers uh, for uh, AWS uh, uh, outposts and uh, uh, similar type of offerings. Interesting outlook. We will see um, how they manage to um, to weather that storm moving forward. Um, Richard and Hannes, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating to speak with you both. Um, and that brings us to the end of this week's episode. We will return next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, you can catch up with all the latest from across the data center and telecoms industries over at capacitymedia.com. There you can find the latest news from capacity and data economy. You can sign up to the daily and weekly news alerts. And you can also catch up with the latest edition of the magazine. Also online, we have the full events calendar as it currently stands. And on that front, content for Capacity Middle East is live online ahead of the physical networking event scheduled to take place in Dubai next month. And we also have Capacity Latam coming up, which takes place at the end of April. For now, that's all from me and the team. Take care, have a great week and catch you next time. <laughs>